You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. guys this morning. Uh, the splash zone up front is incredibly huge today. Um, I must have read ahead into Galatians 3 and seen what was coming down the pike. Um, if we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastor elders of our church. would love to connect with you after the service if that is the case. If you're new, uh, I'm the guy who most Sundays gets to open up the scriptures and preach God's word. That's surely the case this morning. Uh, As you can see behind me up on the screen, we are in the book of Galatians. We're working our way through this book of the Bible throughout the course of the fall months leading right up to the Advent season. This book, uh, believed to have been one of the first of what we now know to be the Apostle Paul's New Testament writings written to a number of churches that Paul himself had helped to plant in the region of Galatia. We can read about that in the book of Acts. An incredibly impassioned letter, as we've seen, for those of you who have been around uh, from the beginning of of this journey, in places, this letter, uh, fiery even, Paul having heard of some some troubling things, having crept into the belief and practice uh, of the Galatian churches, a threat to the gospel of Jesus Christ, false teachers having come in uh, with a distortion of the gospel. Such teaching, not only stirring up division and strife, but leading many to turn away from the one true gospel, sounding off alarm bells for the Apostle Paul, leading him to compose this impassioned letter that that those in the Galatian churches, as we talked about from the beginning, might find life in the sweetness of freedom. A letter that invites you and I to sit with and and steep in its incredible truths that we, like the Galatians, might might grow in deeper understanding and appreciation of the the truth, the beauty, the hope of the gospel. It's what we're after this morning. And so, waste no time in inviting you to open up your Bible to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to camp out in the first 14 verses this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. Feel free to use that Bible during your time with us this morning. Feel free to take that Bible home with you as the church's gift to you if you don't own a copy of the, the scriptures. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump into this incredible passage of scripture. Heavenly Father, thank you for the hope of the gospel. The good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, that we might be declared sons and daughters of the living God, inhabited and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, justified in right legal standing before you. I pray that this good news wouldn't be lost on us, that we wouldn't find it boring because we've somehow gotten into our minds that we can graduate beyond this good news. That the gospel isn't the ABCs of the Christian life, it's the A to Z. Never to be abandoned, never to be distorted. I pray that we would walk away this morning with hearts full as we sit with the beauty of the hope of the gospel in front of us. I pray that we would be compelled as a result of our time together this morning 
to go out and to tell others of this good news who don't know it, who don't believe it, who haven't received it for themselves. God, I pray in this very room this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit that chains would fall off and that people would know the sweetness of freedom. God, I pray that all of this would be ultimately for your glory and your glory alone and for the good and joy of your people. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So at this point, uh, Galatians chapter 3, this part of the letter, Paul up to this point has gone to great lengths to defend both his apostolic authority and the authenticity of his message, declaring both his authority and message to be of divine origin, going back to chapter 1 which he lays out in the detailing of his conversion and calling, as well as the earliest years following his Damascus Road experience, which you can read about in Acts chapter 9. Paul, too, in this letter, wasting no time in expressing astonishment that the Galatians are turning to a different gospel. Chapter 1, verse 6, a distortion of the good news of Jesus Christ. The general argument being that some were insisting that the Galatian Gentiles be circumcised and submit to the Mosaic law in order to have right legal standing with God and in order to be counted among the true people of God. A reminder, as we've talked about for weeks now, that threats to the gospel not only lurk outside the church, but too arise at times from within the church. The false teaching doesn't always seek to do away with Christian terminology, but rather at times seeks to co-opt and distort those very terms and ideas. A quote that I've shared the past several weeks from one pastor and scholar, the, the most dangerous teachers are the ones who preach a different Christ but still call him Jesus. That not everyone who professes to be a Christian serves Christ and not every message that incorporates the word gospel is the gospel. The difference between the Apostle Paul and the false teachers in Galatia, the difference between may and must as they were imposing their personal convictions as universal law, a requirement to enter the kingdom of God. I've shared this quote the past couple weeks from Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary on Galatians. He says, This is a perennial danger for the church. Christians are always trying to add something to the gospel. They elevate some aspect of Christianity to a place of supreme importance so that the good news becomes faith in Christ plus something else. Usually, he says, what gets added to the gospel is something good in itself. Some particular experience of the Holy Spirit, perhaps. Some special ministry, usually the ministry we are involved with. Some methodology for having devotions, growing a church, or raising a family. Some distinctive doctrine or style of worship. Some political or social cause. Some way of doing or of not doing what the world does. But for the gospel, he says, to be the gospel... It has to stand alone. The gospel is Christ plus nothing. Paul declares, chapter 1, verse 7, that there is no other gospel, that any distortion of the gospel is no gospel, that anyone who would preach a different gospel stands under the divine curse of God. Paul helping us to see in chapter 2, through both Titus and Peter, what it means to live in accordance with the one true gospel. In Titus's case, in not adding circumcision to faith in Christ, Titus, an uncircumcised Gentile who genuinely loved and trusted in Jesus, had an effective, fruitful ministry alongside the Apostle Paul, proof that, that God was at work among and through the, the Gentiles. And with that, that 
circumcision was not necessary to be counted among God's people. In Peter's case, going back to last week, the hypocrisy of treating Gentile believers as inferior for not being Jewish enough in their keeping of dietary laws when a crowd of Judaizers came to town. Peter's conduct out of step with the truth of the gospel so that he was unsaying in conduct what he was saying in doctrine. And Paul called it out as condemnable hypocrisy. It's a sobering reminder that, that none of us is beyond temptation as it pertains to standing for the truth of the gospel when the approval of others is at stake. Whether it be the compromising of the message of the gospel itself or the decisions we make when we're around those whose approval means most. Paul's rebuke of Peter, a booming declaration that no matter whose approval is at stake, we are servants of Christ, chapter 1, verse 10. Paul closing out chapter 2 with the good news of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The good news that God declares guilty sinners righteous in his sight as a gift of grace, and it's a gift of forgiveness and right legal standing before God that we receive by faith. Faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. At the moment of our conversion, justification, an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as pardoned and Jesus' righteousness as belonging to you and me and declares us to be righteous in his sight. So that when we receive Jesus by faith, his righteousness counts for us as if you and I, sinners that we are, had lived the righteous life that God demands. In the words of one pastor and scholar, we are acceptable to God, not by keeping his law, but by trusting in the only man who ever did, Jesus Christ. Which Paul is going to tease out even more as we get into chapter 3, this one of the more complex chapters in all of Paul's writings. Which should come as no surprise, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Peter himself says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom of God given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. The commissioned apostle Peter himself declaring that Paul's writings include in them some things that are difficult to understand. Chapter 3 of his letter to the churches of Galatia, surely among Paul's more difficult to understand writings. You'll see that momentarily. As we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the first of two times that Paul calls the Galatians foolish. Having been bewitched, enchanted by this distortion of the gospel of Christ. Having seen Christ publicly portrayed as crucified through Paul's proclamation of the gospel in their towns. Paul's preaching of Christ so vivid, so bold that it it was as if those listening witnessed the crucifixion with their very own eyes. John Calvin once declared that 
The church needs more preachers who will so vividly communicate the gospel that when people hear the preaching of the word of God, it will be so vivid and graphic that it will be as if they are seeing for themselves the very crucifixion of Christ. So it was for the Galatians. They had, they had come face to face with the offense of the cross. Chapter 5, verse 11. The offense of the cross being that we can do nothing to merit the love and acceptance of God. The offense of the cross being that we're so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. That our only hope is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That we can be sure that we ourselves stand among the foolish and bewitched when we live as though we can merit God's acceptance through our own self-wrought obedience. Be it our attendance and church going, our commitment to spiritual disciplines, that not even our most pious thoughts or actions can atone for sin, bringing us into a place of acceptance and right legal standing before God. That to think and, and live as such is foolish, Paul says. Not only in that it, it contradicts the redemptive work of Jesus, but to the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to say in verse 2, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The question is a simple question, one that the Galatians would have had little trouble answering. Right? They had received the, the Spirit by hearing with faith, as is the case for all Christians. In trusting in Jesus, we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit so that every Christian has the Holy Spirit from conversion, and anyone who does not have the Holy Spirit is not a Christian. Paul says it elsewhere in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Right, going back to last week, the end of chapter 2, we're given not only right legal standing before God in Christ, but a new heart and a new identity. The old I, Paul says, dead and buried. The new I, alive to Christ. The Spirit of Christ living and abiding in His people, dwelling in our hearts through faith. Paul says, verse 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right, the Galatians had uh, received the Spirit by hearing with faith, as is the case again for all Christians. In trusting in the person and redemptive work of Jesus, we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Spirit who Paul says works miracles among his people. Maybe the greatest miracle, chapter 4, verse 6, enabling us to cry, Abba, Father. God having sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, Romans 8, 16. How did the Galatians first receive the indwelling spirit? Not by works of the law, verse 2, but again by hearing with faith. Paul preached the gospel in the synagogues and marketplaces 
declaring all to be sinners, having fallen short of the glory of God, and that Jesus died for sin and rose from the grave, and that those who trust in him can know true and lasting forgiveness. And they were cut to the heart by the Spirit, as God shone in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. So that what was once foolishness became for them the wisdom and power of God. It's the miraculous, creational, illuminating work of God's sovereign grace as Paul himself had experienced in his own unique way on the road to Damascus. That the Galatians had no more worked to receive the Spirit than Paul himself had worked to receive the Spirit. Both he and the Galatians, uh, Galatian believers had received the, the Spirit not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. So Paul asked, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul's point being, and, and don't miss this, that we continue the Christian life the way we began the Christian life. Not by nullifying grace, but relying on it. Not by diminishing the sufficiency of the cross, but clinging to it. Not by self-reliant works of the law, but spirit-reliant faith in God. A few questions for us this morning as we sit with a passage like this. Are we daily acknowledging that apart from Christ we can do nothing? John chapter 15 verse 5. Are we daily asking him to work in us that which is pleasing in his sight? Hebrews chapter 13 verse 21. Are we daily trusting him to divinely enable us? Are we daily giving thanks and praise for his enabling and sustaining grace? The cry of our hearts in regular rhythm, in humble reliance and gratitude, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Like Abraham, who believed God, verse 6, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul here citing Genesis 15, the covenant that God made with Abraham. One of the most famous moments in redemptive history. If you look into Genesis 15, it begins with these words. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus and Abram said behold you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir and behold the word of the Lord came to him this man shall not be your heir your very own son shall be your heir and he brought him outside and said look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them and he said to him so shall your offspring be and he Abram believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. The, those who were distorting the gospel in Galatia were, were doing so on the basis of the law of Moses. And so Paul declares, let's go back even further than Moses. How about, how about we do that? Let's go all the way back to Father Abraham. A man who had done absolutely nothing to deserve God's blessing. The promise itself made to Abram impossible for him to fulfill in his own power. The promise of an heir as a hundred-year-old man with a nearly hundred-year-old wife. The promise of descendants as innumerable as the stars in the sky. 
This promise all about God, his grace, his wonder-working power. In fact, if you go on to read in Genesis 15, we're told that Abram fell asleep when God's covenant with him was enacted. He wasn't even awake for it. So that it was God and God alone who made the covenant on the basis of his grace and nothing that Abram contributed. He simply believed God, trusting in God and his promises, and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Meaning not that that he was righteous. His life, surely not without its sinful moments along the way. Read about that in Genesis 2. Nor meaning that his faith was a, a meritorious good work, a virtuous good work. Rather, meaning that by faith, God conferred righteous standing upon him, just as God does with any sinner who turns to Christ in faith. Faith being the instrument of our justification, Christ and Christ alone being the ground of our justification. John Stott says it this way. He says, faith is laying hold of Jesus Christ personally. There is no merit in it. It is not another work. Its value is not in itself, but entirely in its object, Jesus Christ. Christ is the bread of life. Faith feeds upon him. Christ was lifted up on the cross. Faith gazes at him there. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This righteousness, notice, credited to him, not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. Romans chapter 4, verse 10. A blow to the argument of the Judaizers. What do you do with Abraham? He was declared in right legal standing before God, not by works of the law, but through faith. This is before the law ever even came along. So that Paul goes on in verse 7 to say, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and that includes you and me, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, Paul says, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Again, these are, these are difficult things to understand in the deep weeds of their detail. But, but what I think Paul's saying is this. Scripture or the word personified, preached to Abraham before the law was given to Moses, declaring the good news that all the nations, that is, those who are of faith, would be blessed in him. Meaning that the uh, proclamation of the gospel, Paul says, goes all the way back to Abraham. This is not new when Jesus shows up on the scene. That's why Jesus himself would say, John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, to Jesus, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Proclamation of the gospel goes all the way back to to Abraham. So that Abraham himself looked forward by faith to the day of the promised Messiah. In fact, and many of you know this, the, the proclamation of the gospel predates even Abraham, going all the way back to our first parents in the garden. A verse that 
comes up often as we gather as a church. Genesis 3.15, the proto-euangelion, the, the first good news, the first announcement of the gospel. The Lord God said to the, the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The famous declaration that God made to Satan in response to sin's entrance into the world by way of the serpent siren song. Not only identifying Satan to be the villain of this story, but two, offering the promise of a serpent-crushing hero to come, a dragon slayer. Salvation, it's always been by grace through faith in the promised Messiah, even for those who knew not yet to call him Jesus. That as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so we believe by faith in Jesus Christ and our faith is counted to us as righteousness. That it is those of faith, verse 7, who are the sons of Abraham and who enjoy the the blessings promised to Abraham and his offspring, verse 9. Regardless of physical descent, in contrast to, to those who are arguing that to receive the blessings of Abraham, a Gentile had to become a Jew, so to speak, through circumcision. If you go back even further in the book of Genesis to chapter 12, the initial call of Abraham to walk in the footsteps of faith, we're told there that God said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promised to to bless Abraham that he might be a blessing to the nations. All the families of the earth blessed through Abraham and his descendants. The Gentiles included in God's plan of redemption. And and unless we we think that uh, this to be anything less, this blessing, than sonship, than adoption, than heirs of the inheritance, we need only look ahead in the book of Genesis, a few chapters in the life of Abraham, where we're told, Genesis 17, verses 4 and 5, Behold, God says, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. As Paul says in Romans 4, Abraham, the father of all who believe. As Paul will go on to say, we'll get there next week, at the end of Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. God's blessing for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, regardless of gender, social status, ethnicity, children of Abraham. And as Paul will go on to say, as children of Abraham, children of God. And as children, heirs. Meaning that that we Gentile believers gathered here this morning, are beneficiaries of the promises made to Abraham. 
For one, the promise of justification. Verse 8, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. The part of the blessing of Abraham is that God thinks of our sins as pardoned and Jesus' righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. Two, as we talked about earlier, the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Part of our inheritance, too, as children of Abraham. Those divine blessings, among many others, ours by faith in Christ. We who otherwise left to our own merit would stand under the divine curse. As Paul goes on to say in verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. As we've seen throughout this letter, works of the law meaning not obedience as an outworking of faith, but rather works of the law as a means of self-justification before God, as a means of obtaining right legal standing with God. Paul here quoting the book of Deuteronomy to show that relying on works of the law for right legal standing before God can only incur divine curse. None of us has nor can abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So that Paul goes on in verse 11, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, that is the works of the law, shall live by them. What is Paul saying here? Here he he continues his string of Old Testament citations in referencing both the book of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith, and the book of Leviticus, the one who does them, that is the works of the law, shall live by them. The Habakkuk reference, hearkening back to when Habakkuk complained to God that Israel was a nation living deeply in covenant rebellion so that the threat of Babylonian captivity loomed And God's response to Habakkuk was not that Israel should in her own strength try harder and do better. But rather, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul leans on those words to make the point that salvation comes not through obedience to the law, but through faith in Christ. Which Paul contrasts with that quote from Leviticus. The one who does them, that is works of the law, shall live by them. In other words, more power to you if if your aim is to merit God's acceptance. If you obey the works of the law, you shall live. The problem, going back to verse 10, is that no one is able. And thus all who live as such stand accursed. No one had given it the old college try better than Saul of Tarsus. Philippians 3, 6, a man as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And yet... Guilty of the sin of cross-diminishing, grace-nullifying self-reliance. And therefore, under the divine curse. No one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Words which forever changed the life and destiny of Martin Luther. Who knew better than most what it was to claw after the acceptance and approval of God. And who declared those words to have opened the doors through which he entered into the very paradise of God. 
Perhaps few words sweeter to Luther than those which Paul goes on to write in verses 13 and 14. Where he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That Jesus earned the Lord's blessing, the light of the Lord's countenance. He, Jesus, not only the seed of Abraham, but the new Israel, who succeeded where Israel failed in his own wilderness-wandering experience, who succeeded where we all fail, having lived a life of perfect, sinless obedience. And yet, the Father made not his face to shine upon the Son on the cross. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turned his face away. So that Jesus cried out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cursed Jesus was for our blessing. That is for those who trust in him for salvation. Those who are united to him by faith. Counted as Abraham's offspring in Christ, heirs according to the promise, Galatians 3.29. Someday, Revelation 7, to join the great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, all standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. That's where this story's headed. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote of his conversion in his work entitled, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He said, one day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought, with all, I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness. For that was just before him. I also saw, he says, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made me righteous, my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. John Bunyan found life in the sweetness of freedom, such freedom that even physical imprisonment couldn't rob him of it. A man who spent 12 years in shackles for refusing to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. A husband and father of four, by the way, at the time of his imprisonment. In that same autobiography, he would go on to write from that very prison cell. I am indeed in prison now, in body, but my mind is free to study Christ and how unto me he is kind. For though men keep my outward man within their locks and bars, yet by the faith of Christ I can mount higher than the stars. Their fetters cannot spirits tame nor tie up God from me. My faith and hope they cannot lame, above them I shall be. A man in shackles, in fetters, 
freer than many who grace the doors of buildings like these. In a 2011 Barna Group poll, which is only a little over a decade ago, 46% of professing Christians said that they would agree with the following statement. Quote, if a person is generally good or does enough good things for others during their life, they will earn a place in heaven. 46% of professing Christians living daily in the bondage of works-based righteousness. Works of the law, not simply evidence of true living, justifying faith for this 46%. We're not talking about the outworking of faith alone through which we're brought into right legal standing before God, but rather works of the law as part of the formula for meriting God's acceptance. Part of the formula for right legal standing before God. It's as if, and maybe it's a little too early in the year to give Christmas illustrations, but to use the illustration of one scholar, it's as if to say justification were a gift with batteries not included. The batteries being our own works-based righteousness. I think the Apostle Paul himself would agree that we can be sure that we stand among the foolish and bewitched when we live as though we can merit God's acceptance through our own self-wrought obedience. As though Christ's work plus our works bring us positionally into right standing before a holy God. Which Paul says, chapter 2, verse 21, nullifies the very grace of God and treats the death of Jesus as unnecessary or insufficient. Again, coming back to John Stott and his commentary on this great book of the Bible, he says, We must reject the proud foolishness of supposing that we can establish our own righteousness or make ourselves acceptable to God. Instead, we must come humbly to the cross where Christ bore our curse and throw ourselves entirely upon his mercy. And then, by God's sheer grace, because we are in Christ Jesus by faith, we shall receive justification, eternal life, and the indwelling spirit. The blessing of Abraham will be ours. And so I think the question this morning is, is simple. Do you know this blessing? Do you know this freedom? If not, the invitation is to look humbly to the cross and throw yourself in trust upon the mercy of God. And if your answer is yes, what else is there to do but sing? And so we're going to do that together. The song of the church. Going to give some space for a few moments of reflection before we dive into the first lyrics of this next song. Just a time to, to sit with and, and wrestle with what the implications of this passage are for us. If it's true that 46% of professing Christians would adhere to a works-based, meritorious formula of, of right standing before God, I don't want to pretend for a second to think that there might not be some in this room who are pre-John Bunyan shackles falling off. That maybe today is the day of salvation for somebody in this room to say, like Martin Luther, like John Bunyan, I've been clawing 
My whole life, I've been sitting in churches like these and still clawing. Maybe this morning would would be the moment that the gospel becomes real and alive, that the chains would fall off, that someone would find life in the sweetness of freedom. Maybe for we who are in Christ, knowing that we're prone to wander, Lord, I fear it, prone to leave the God I love, that there's a propensity in all of us functionally to say my creed and confession would never be that, that I add to the meritorious work of Jesus as it pertains to right standing before God, but I sure wake up and live that way often. That we too would come back to the freedom that's found at the foot of the cross. And that out of that would come our song to this God of grace and mercy. Also have an opportunity to worship through the receiving of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you not to partake of the bread and the cup, but that your next step would be one of repentance and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are a Christian, as many of you know, we take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, and we dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. There are communion stations on either side of the stage. There's a gluten-free table in the back corner there. As you prepare to receive of those elements, I would just encourage you to come back and bring in front of you verses 13 and 14 of this morning's passage. And you sit with those words. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And Jesus surely was. So that in him, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that is you and me, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources, and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C.com.